The following message is brought to you by Sovereign Grace Church. We're honored that you're taking the time to stream this sermon. It's our hope that you are receiving this sermon as a supplement to your active participation in a local body of believers where pastors who know you and love you faithfully preach for your benefit every week. If you are not a member of a local church, then we'd encourage you to find a local church today. For more information about Sovereign Grace Church or other churches in our denomination, please visit www.sobgracemn.org. So here's how I want to begin. I want to begin with a couple light-hearted questions. Here they are. Be thinking about them. Do you have people in your life who like to ask questions? If you said no, then this next question is probably for you. Are you the person in people's lives who always asks questions? I got to tell you, there are two people in my home who make it their goal in life to barrage me with questions. Uh, my wife, Cherise, who in my opinion has one of the most inquisitive minds, that's why she asks questions, uh, never fails to line up questions when I get home from the office. I mean, it, it's, it's like getting hit by a water cannon. Uh, the questions come in fast and furious, and, and rightfully so, right? If, if we haven't spoken all day, we haven't communicated, we've got to touch base about life, family, etc. What also happens, so uh, my oldest daughter has taken on that same trait. She really needs to patent this phrase, and I quote, Daddy, I just have one more question. <laughs> and with her, it's never just one question. After you answer the first question, you always expect her to ask again, Daddy, I just have one more question. So, at the Powers House, I get the water cannon of questions from two, diff two different directions. Now, here's the deal about questions. They're important. I've been learning to ask more questions when I have personal interactions with people. I'm trying to learn from my oldest daughter and my, and my wife. But if you're going to ask questions, you've got to be ready for a, a response. Perhaps you've heard the idiom, be careful of what you ask for. So at the Powers House, an asked question results in a response. The, the, the book of Psalms know, is known for asking questions. I don't know if you've been reading through the Psalms, and as we've gone through the summer Psalms, have you noticed there's one question lined up after another? Oftentimes, questions in Psalms lead us to consider truth about God or, or about ourselves. It's leading us to something or to know something. And today's question from today's Psalm fits into this same pattern. It's, a, it's actually a direct question. And in this Psalm, the author David also answers the question for us. It's the question and the answer that I want to dial in on this morning. So this morning I want to ask with David a question he asked twice in Psalm 24. Here it is. Who is this king of glory? That is the question. I want to use this question as the banner over this sermon because how you answer this question has temporal importance and eternal significance. Some here already know the answer to the question, and praise God. Some here think they know the answer to the question, but it hasn't hit your heart. 
And there are others still, including billions of people all around this world who have never even asked this question. They don't even know that this question is relevant and therefore are eternally separated from God. My hope this morning is that no matter how you answer this question right now, who is this king of glory? That by the end of this message, Psalm 24 will provide for you all the clarity you need. And that, and that I would ask that the Holy Spirit would stir your affections, your desires to respond to this king of glory. So even if you know the answer to our question, I want to challenge you to respond to what you already know. So my, my assumption is this question is going to land on each person perhaps a little bit differently. But even so, there's an opportunity to respond. So with this question as the focal point of today's message, let's read Psalm 24 and discover the answer. We'll read the entire psalm, starting in verse 1. God's word says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Now, there's a poetic transition going on here into verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. This is the word of the Lord. The question I'm highlighting this morning can be read in verses 8 and 10. Some, some take this question as rhetorical, which makes sense because the question solicits, solicits an immediate response from the author. Excuse me. We do read other questions in this psalm, but the other questions are a means to answer this question, who is this king of glory? Now, David, the author of this psalm, is writing out of his experience. So let me put this psalm into its historical context so that we know what's going on. I think it's going to be helpful for us to answer this question rightly. Here, here are two historical points that help us understand why this question was important to the people of God in the Old Testament and to the people of God in the 21st century. First piece of historical information is this. It involves the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I'm not talking about the Ark of the Covenant from Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, which, by the way, was my first interaction with the Ark of the Covenant when I was young. I'm talking about the Ark of the Covenant discussed in the Bible. 
The ark was a beautiful chest with jewels. It, it was made of gold, and inside this ark of the covenant were the tablets of the Ten Commandments, also restored, were manna that came down from heaven that God gave to his people as we were going through the wilderness. So we had some of that, and then we had Aaron's bud, Aaron's staff that was budding also in this ark of the covenant. All of these which point to God's faithfulness to Israel throughout history. Several passages in the Old Testament describe how the glory of God would enter and depart with the movement of this ark. So if the ark goes over there, so goes the presence of God. Long story short, the ark of the covenant was a big deal to Israel because it's where the presence of God dwelt. This psalm was likely composed when the ark was taken from Kichef Jerim, small town, in Canaan, to Mount Zion. So we're moving it from one place to another. Mount Zion, which is located right outside of Jerusalem. Therefore, this psalm was a recognition of God's faithfulness to his people throughout history, and it was also a heartfelt invitation to be in the presence of God. That was a historical piece number one. That's why David was compelled to write this. It was connected to the Ark of the Covenant. Another piece of historical information that elevates this psalm as the first among equals was its common use after the ark entered Jerusalem. If you're a historical geek, this is is probably your best thing of the sermon right here. If you love history, here you go. This psalm was a part of Jewish liturgy sung on the first day of the week, Sunday, in the temple. Uh, This the Greek Old Testament tells us this psalm is a psalm of David for the first day a week. So this psalm was sung as a declaration of truth. This is no different than what we do on Sunday morning here, right? We sing truth about who God is and how he's been faithful. However, the difference with this psalm is that it was prioritized to be part of regular worship patterns in Jewish life. It's Sunday. Guess what we're singing, guys? Nobody, everyone knew the answer. We're singing this. So in addition to this psalm's connection to the Ark of the Covenant and its inclusion in Jewish uh, liturgy, this psalm is not only beautiful, but it's highly theological. As we're going to see in a moment, this psalm reaches back to Genesis 1, reflects on Jewish history, but it reaches forward to Christ. This psalm tells us how to recognize and respond to King Jesus. So the proverbial cat is out of the bag here, right? The answer to the question, who is this King of glory? It's King Jesus. And that's what I want to show and defend this morning. We can learn from this psalm about the character of this king. So here's how I want to mine the text in order to show the beauty of the answer. The first broad category that I want to use as a lens to look out of onto the text is simply this, recognizing the king of glory. First broad category. Our recognition will be the answer to the question. The second category is responding to the king of glory. If you're going to recognize him, what does it mean to respond to him? If the answer to my question is what I say it is, it should rock every person in this room down to the core. It's life-altering. Indeed, our response is evidence 
of our recognition. Even more, when we recognize who this King of glory is, the heart, our heart, is compelled to respond. So let's go through this psalm with these two headings as our guide in our pursuit of worshiping in God's word. Recognizing this King of glory. Verses 1 and 2, let's start there, begin to describe this King of glory. If you're here this morning, you don't know this King of glory, I encourage you to listen up. This is good stuff. Here are those verses again. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns this planet. The world and those who dwell therein. That means you and me. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Verses 1 and 2 remind me of another psalm, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 24 and Psalm 19, verse 1, point to a king who creates and is sovereign over what he creates. We can get a sense of what this king is like because he has revealed aspects of his glory in creation. You can look out and see. It's not hidden. We can see. This king founded and established every square inch of this planet. Just think about that for a moment. Just ponder that. Every square inch. I hardly know every square inch of my house. Like, I, I hardly go in my attic. There's probably a dead mouse up there. A few. I have no clue. But God knows every square Here's an analogy that quickly falls, but helps make my point. God is, is like a good architect, a general contractor and developer of your house. Every detail was created by God with purpose. God is also the landlord of the house. It is sovereign over the tenants of the house. So Hebrews 1.3 holds true. This king of glory is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The God of glory providentially puts all things in the house in order and sustains what he has created for his good purposes. Do you believe in a God who is a sovereign creator king who continues to providentially move in every aspect of your life? Let's make it personal. Do you believe that? Can you not only believe it theologically or in your head, but practically live in a way where the very existence of God affects you in every moment of your life. And that's where it gets hard, right? At least it's hard for me. I can believe it up here. Then I got, can I live it here and in my life when, it's, when times are good or when times are hard? The truth of God's sovereignty can sustain you when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And it can sing to you in a celebration. This is a powerful truth for us to grasp. The reality is this, whether you think God is in complete control of your life or not, Psalm 24, 1 is true, and his sovereignty over every person's life exists. So the question really becomes, are you willing to believe a truth or a lie? 
Here's another supporting text uh, for this Christian truth. Oh man, the Psalms are just like a gold mine for the sovereignty of God over all of us. Psalm 15, 115.3. Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. In Psalm 135, verse 6 and 7, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. The king does not simply have the ability to be sovereign. Oh no. Sovereignty is a part of the king's identity and nature. It's who he is. I think it's also helpful to hone in on God as creator. David, the author of this psalm, undoubtedly is thinking about the creation of the world and reflects on Genesis 1, verse 9 and 10. It's the third day of creation. Here are those verses. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So sovereign God creating the world. It was so. He just spoke it into existence. God called the Dry land, earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. What I want you to see in mentioning Genesis here is the consistency of the scriptures. It's beautiful. From the first book, Genesis, to the Psalms, to the New Testament, like the passage I spoke about from Hebrews, they reveal the kind of king that is worthy of our worship. This creator king continues to have dominion, control, power, and sustains what he has made. He's not a distant God who created everything and backed away and said, it's all good. He continues to move and interact. He pours out grace, love, and mercy to you. And what makes this king so awesome is that he offers a way for his people to have a relationship with him. Like right now, I'm just, I'm kind of speaking in platitudes. He's sovereign, he's creator. But there's more. He desires a relationship with his people. He's jealous for his people. And his terms are always better than ours. This leads me to my next observation about this king. He is holy. He's holy. This is, an, this is important to grasp, especially as we consider the depths of the question before us. Who is this king of, king of glory? Again, a lot of people want a relationship with God, right? I didn't grow up a Christian, but I, I had this idea growing up. I want a relationship with God, but oftentimes it was on my terms. I want a relationship with God on my terms. But in order to understand what it means to recognize and have a relationship with this king means having it on his terms. And so verse 3 asks, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? As we move from verse 2 to verse 3, we go from proclaiming truths about God to trying to understand what it means to have a relationship with him. The answer to the questions in verse 3 is immediately found in verse 4. Answer, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy presence, in, his, in that place? 
He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So question, do you desire to be in a relationship with this king? Give you a moment, think about that. Do you desire, wherever you're at this morning, however you came into this sanctuary, this auditorium, do you desire that? To be near to this king and in his presence. If so, we've got to wrestle with verses three and four. We've got to wrestle with that. Verses three and four help us to recognize that God is holy and he can't have anything to do with what is impure or sinful. So we've got to wrestle. David is trying to get us to see that something needs to happen to us in order to be in the presence of God. Uh, how many of you, this might tempt some of you, how many of you have, uh, um, have friends who have like pristine homes? Like, just, like you walk in the place and like a, a searchlight couldn't find, find a particle of dust. It's my mother-in-law's home. It's like she's clean. She's even got a 100-pound yellow lab. I don't know how she keeps it that clean. Would, would you consider walking into that home with shoes plastered in mud? It's a silly question, but it makes my point. Of course not. You would not be honoring or respecting that person. So too, you do not enter the presence of a holy God with dirt and sin. So, if that is true, this should cause us to ask, who can enter the presence of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy presence? Who can stand in the presence of the sovereign creator of the world who is holy? David gives us insight in how you can enter the presence of a holy king. First, it says we need to have clean hands and a pure heart. We should consider having clean hands and a pure heart as um, the opposite sides of the same coin. The implication that David has in mind is that our actions are a reflection of our heart. A pure heart will ensure clean hands. So Charles Haddon Spurgeon said of this passage, we may wash the outside of the cup and the platter as long as we please, but if the inward parts be filthy, we are filthy altogether in the sight of God. For our hearts are more truly ourselves than our hands. I find that to be true as I think about my own life. Yes, God is after our heart this morning. Scripture also says that we're not to give in to what is false. I think David is addressing truth and lies, but more fundamentally, he's taking on idolatry. In the Old Testament, especially when we read prophetic books, think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc., God is constantly warning Israel about their temptation and propensity to participate in what is false, namely idolatry. God wants his people to recognize that he, he commands all of our devotion, not just part of our devotion, but all of it. God is jealous for his people to rightly align their affections with him. God does not want divided worship and devotion. Why, so why does God desire this for his people? Because it's for our good. It's for our good. He, he doesn't want us to show up to church on Sunday morning only to leave and find our idols in the world Monday through Saturday. Recognizing the king of glory is to recognize with our mouth and with our life and in our heart that he alone is worthy to be worshipped. No one else. 
No football team, as much as I love my Vikings. No one else. So are you noticing that a recognition of the king of glory means putting away sin, putting away idols, but it also means putting on Christ? My friends, this is, our, our natural inclination is to buck against what is true. It's like, I'm always so tempted. I've got to worship God, worship God alone, but there's so many temptations in the world. What do I do? I find myself gravitating. Go over there, give that my worship and devotion for a few days or just a few hours, maybe just for a moment. I need help. I need help. I hope you see that you need help. Verses 3 and 4 shows us the dilemma. By ourselves, we are unable to enter the presence of God. Here's an example of what I mean. Imagine with me for a moment a filthy rag full of oil. I got this um, picture from David Pallison years ago when he was preaching at a conference. So imagine for me a mo- for a moment a filthy rag full of oil. Every part of the rag is, is covered in filth. You can't pick up the rag without getting your hands dirty. If you're an auto mechanic, I'm sure that this, this example resonates. Now, what you can't do with the rag is throw it into a pile of clean white clothes. You can't take something that is filthy and add it to something that is wholly white and clean. The filthy rag needs to be cleaned by something external of itself in order for it to go into the clean pile. The requirements for entering the presence of God, given in verse 4, cannot be accomplished without being justified by the king and having his righteousness imputed to us. You need the king. And here's the reality. The very presence of God, which we strive to be a part of, is completely dependent upon the grace, mercy, and love of a king who died on a cross. Therefore, the way, the only way to enter the presence of a holy God is to embrace the holy king who died for your sin and made a way for you to be right with God. Who shall ascend, who shall be in the presence of God? Those who have been made right by Christ. Who have repented and received Christ. Only then are you able to enter the presence of God. Let me make one more point about having access to a holy God in relationship to ourselves. All Christians should be stunned and humbled that the creator of the world would provide a way for his elect people to have access to him through Christ. Just look at verse 5 again. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. David knew there was nothing he could do to make himself right with God. He was only made righteous because his salvation was in God. If David knew this before the king of glory died on a cross, how much more should we realize this truth as the church? What I am not saying is that because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, that striving for these areas mentioned by David should cease. The opposite is true. Because of Christ, we can put away sin. Because of Christ, sanctification is a matter of joy. Because of Christ, we can recognize and respond to a holy God rightly. It's because of Christ that we have been made holy and righteous. We are now called to walk in a manner that actually reflects our new nature. That's the change. we got a new nature because of Christ. 
a new nature that is in Christ. And that is what we are called now to walk out of. That is how we can become in the presence of God. You need Christ. All the other idols of the world will not do. All the other paths in the world will not do. Therefore, we can recognize that God is holy and that, his, and that this holy God is calling his people to also be holy. So we've been made holy and we continue to strive to be holy. Spurgeon again, just so clear and lucid. Outward practical holiness is a very precious mark of grace. Outward practical holiness is evidence that the king has changed your heart and given you new life. You cannot respond and accomplish what David asks unless you recognize the king for who he is and your great need to be reconciled to God through Christ. You know, on Friday night, I was mulling this message over. And I simply asked the Lord in prayer, what, what do you want your people, Sovereign Grace Church, and those who've come here this morning, what do you want them to see in this message? What's, what's the takeaway, right? I think there's a few answers. I think first, we need to see our great need for Christ. You need to remind yourself of your great need for Jesus. Second, I think the answer is to also apply by God's grace what we already know to be true about God got to apply that. He is sovereign. He is creator of all things. He is holy, but we've got to apply these truths. Like, how do you do that? That's what we want to, that's what I want to get at here in a moment. If your takeaway is merely intellectual, you miss the point of the message. If you miss the point of why, you miss the point of why this psalm was composed. We are called to respond. So we recognize that God is the creator of the world. He is sovereign. He is holy. That through Christ, we have been made a way to be made right with God and stand in his presence. But how, again, now, how do we respond? We've got to respond to the king of glory. How we respond to the king of glory matters. And in verses 7 to 10, I want to pull out two ways that we're called to respond. Two ways. One response is more obvious than the other. First, let me give you the not-so-obvious way in which we can respond to this king of glory. The first way we can respond is to be on mission with God. Now, full disclosure, right here. I don't think David was writing this psalm with the thought of using a question as a means to propel God's people into mission. I think he had a, a different response in mind, which I'm going to get to in a moment. But this doesn't mean we still can't apply. I said at the beginning of my message that questions are important. And I've tried to show you from Psalm 24 that God in the face of Jesus Christ is the King of glory. Who is this King of glory? It's Jesus. But let me suggest this. There are billions of people in this world, some people in this room, who don't believe that Jesus is the answer or don't even know the question is relevant for knowing God. Now for those who know Jesus is the answer in their head, in their heart, in their life, they've repented of sin and turned to Christ, that this King of glory is the God of your salvation, you've you still got to pause and ask, who, 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 who around me? needs to ask this question? Who do I know that needs to answer this question? Who needs to hear that Jesus is the king of glory? You know, you, know, you don't have to frame, I'm not suggesting like 
you just walk up to people, who do you know the king of glory? You know, it's wise ways to do it. There's different ways to, to frame this. There's different ways to be on mission. Earlier um, in the summer, I was milling around the house with the kids, and um, there came a knock at my door. It was around 7 o'clock at night. It was, and I'm like, I wasn't expecting anyone. And at the door were two Mormon missionaries. They wanted to talk. I wanted to talk. Okay. I didn't even have to go anywhere. Uh, but the evening wasn't the right time, so I asked them to come back the next evening. And knowing Mormon missionaries, I knew that they were going to come back. If you give them an invitation, they're going to be there. They're coming. They'll bring their friends, you know. So the next night, I somewhat strategically made sure uh, I was doing a project in my garage. You know, garage door up, I'm working on something. And uh, I wanted them to have no doubt in their minds that I was available. They came, and we had a nice, it was a good chat. And they talked. I let them talk. And I let them talk a little more. And then after a while, I just said to them, I got two questions for you. That's it, just two questions. Two questions, here we go. You ready, guys? Ready? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Ready. First, who is God? And second, is Jesus truly God? These two questions led to an hour and a half discussion, which Sharice took a picture and chronicled it on Facebook, I think. Uh, but these two questions, we were off to the races. An hour and a half, two hours of discussion. So all I needed to do was ask two questions. We can be propelled, and it seems silly, but we can be propelled into mission by asking, who is this king of glory? And who needs to know about this king of glory? Jesus is the king of glory because all the earth is his. All that is in the earth is his. Jesus is the king of glory because he makes his people pure and holy by the blood which he spilled on the cross. He makes his people righteous through his atoning death. So Christian, do you see how this question from Psalm 24 can propel you into mission? You can tell people the answer to the question. Let me tell you who this king of glory is. So mission can be a response to the recognition that Jesus is the king of glory. A second response, and I think this is exactly what David was getting at. It's more obvious, is that worship is our response to this king of glory. Worship. I think verses 7 to 10 were written as a res worshipful response to the truths of verses 1 to 6. You might have noticed it was a slight change. All of a sudden, it got poetic in verse 7. It was a response. Here are those verses again. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty in battle. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. One commentator says these verses are not pageantry, not merely trying to impress, but they're a battle cry for the church. These verses are a proper response to the King. 
So I want to make two points about our worshipful response from verses 7 to 10. First, and as I've said, these verses were meant for worship. They were written as an antiphone. We did this earlier uh, when we were singing worship. This means it was used as, as two groups singing to one another. One group singing the question, the other group singing the answer. In other words, a correct response to the King of Glory is to sing. From our heart and with our mouth, we sing. And this makes sense in light of the historical information I shared with you at the beginning of the message. Also, David gives us several more attributes that describe the king of glory in verses 7 to 10. It says the king is strong and mighty even in battle. Interesting. Mighty in battle, I think, is a reference to God's provision and protection over his people. Remember, Israel came out of Egypt being persecuted, and God brought them through. He provided, He protected. For the church, this means that God is still mighty in battle. God is going to preserve and protect His church. So, this truth is worthy of our praise. It also says in verse 10 the King is the Lord of hosts. It seems that this statement belongs in our discussion about the sovereignty of God in verses 1 and 2, if you remember. Uh, however, David the author, I think, is ending Psalm 24 the way he began Psalm 24. The Lord of hosts is in control of all things, everything you touch and experience. So David has bookend this psalm with the sovereignty of God. Our response, I hope, is awe and wonder before the sovereign creator of the universe. David even tells us to lift up our heads. And I think that's a word for all of us, but for those who are especially weary this morning. Meaning, we can humbly and boldly come before our God. It's like, I'm just picturing this, it's like we're kneeling before the king of glory, eyes down, Perhaps in shame, perhaps awe, wonder, holy fear. Different kind of emotions will be in different people. And while you're kneeling, the king of glory, Jesus, gets down on your level, puts his hand under your chin, and lifts your head up so that your eyes are connecting with his. It's in this moment you realize or remember that the king of glory died on a cross for your sins. This king of glory now mediates on your behalf before a holy and righteous father, this king of glory wants all your praise, devotion, thought life, money, time. And why wouldn't you give it to him? Why don't you give everything to the creator and sovereign God of the universe? All things. Like playing poker. All the chips are on the table for this God. I'm all in. Does that describe you? Are you all in for this king of glory? Is that how you're responding to this recognition of this king of glory. There is no room for self-worship when following this king of glory. No room. I don't say that as a rebuke. I'm just saying that's the reality. I struggle with this too. I need Jesus. We all need Jesus. We need his help. So my prayer is that you allow your affections, wherever you're at, however you came in this morning, allow your affections to be stirred 
by this psalm. Recognize the king of glory and then respond. Perhaps you're in a place this morning where it's difficult to get your affections for God stirred. I understand. I've been there. You recognize the king of glory but find it difficult to respond. My encouragement for you is that during the response song, which we'll do here in a moment, in prayer, cry out to God. And perhaps at the end of the service, come ask for prayer. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never had your affections stirred for God. Like this idea of this king of glory that Jesus is king is new. Um, You never repented from sin and turned to King Jesus. My prayer is that you cease to strive on your own and embrace the king who wants to walk with you, who died for you, who loves you and cares for you, who extends mercy and grace to you. Your response is just turning to him and realizing you can't do it on your own. There's nothing you can do to be made right with God apart from Jesus Christ. Turn to him. And if you're here this morning and you're in a sweet season of life where your affections are right now just constantly stirred by King Jesus, it's just a small assignment. Pray. Pray for those around you. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. As As a church and as a family, we absolutely need each other. I need you. So for all of us, let us recognize and respond to the King of glory, King Jesus.